Welcome to the Restoration Church weekly podcast. Please take a minute to subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. And be sure to download the Church Center app. This is the best way to stay connected and up to date with all that's happening at Restoration Church. Most importantly, we hope the following message will help draw you closer to Christ. Thanks for listening. Hey, I, I prefaced the last couple weeks of the series by stating these are going to be long messages. Today's not as long as the last two, um, but it's, it's going to be a lot. Not, not so much in time-wise. This is going to be a lot to process. I'm just going to say right now, okay? Get your phones out if you're a, if you're a picture taker of the slides because you're going to be snapping away. Um, but if you're a note taker, make sure to stay on your toes because there's going to be a lot to process today. But before we conclude our series on human sexuality, let me share where we're going for the rest of the summer. The series, um, the series has been mentally exhausting for me. Um, it's been really, really good, I think. I hope it's been challenging to you, informative for you. Um, but one of the reasons that, um, one of the reasons it's been challenging is because I've had to delve so much into so much content, and so the messages have been really long, which means that we haven't sung a whole lot. And so next week, we're going to make up for all those lost opportunities to sing. And next week, we're just going to, we're going to worship together. That's all we're going to do. We're going to come here and we're going to sing. If you don't like singing in public, I would encourage you to try to step out of your comfort zone, still show up because it's going to be so important. Song was how theology was conveyed early on in the church. Song was how people understood who God was and what God was about and how he loved them. And we're going to be singing. We're going to be praising God. We're going to be lifting his, his praise and we're going to be reflecting. And if you don't like to sing publicly, then just come and pray. That's an option for you too. But we really, really encourage you to join us next week as we sing. Then starting on the 13th of August, we're starting a series titled Five Lessons I Wished I Learned as a Younger Person to Help Me Live Wisely, Know Truth, Live Courageously, Love Jesus, and Thrive in Life. And again, there are house groups attached to the series, and so I encourage you to get into a group to discuss this content Get to know people over dinner, get to know them over games, be cared for, care for others, grow in your relationship with God around these five topics. But today we have come to the end. Hallelujah, we've come to the end. Several months ago I asked you for questions um, about all things, God, the world, life, whatever, um, and you, you gave me about 23 questions. We talked about those over the course of a series. Uh, but about a third of those questions were all about human sexuality, and so we weren't going to just kind of shove everything into one message on that series. We said we we're going to parse it out over five weeks, and we are now in week five of this series, this very important topic. I hope that if you ventured with us, you found them to be helpful, if not challenging, and there's so much more that could be said about this very important topic. But there are also so many great resources, and we're going to put this list up here. These are all the books that I read over the last three months in preparation for this, and I would just encourage you to take a picture of this. If you want any of these books, I have them on my on my desk. You're welcome to borrow them. Um, order them if you think that would be helpful. If there's a specific question that you have or a topic that you'd be more interested in, let me know. I'd be happy to point you in the direction uh, that I found to be most helpful. But because this is a, such an important topic, we... We can't ignore it. This is really the issue of our day, especially for our, our teens, our younger ones. This is the issue of our day. So we can't ignore it. We can't close our eyes to it. We can pretend it's not as perverse as it is. I guess we could do that. We could hope that it goes away. We could yell at it. We could throw verbal rocks at it. We could lambast it. But this issue is not going anywhere. 
So we have to talk about it. We have to be educated about it. We have to think deeply about it and guide those entrusted to us and guide ourselves through it cautiously, carefully, but also courageously. And so we are going to continue thinking strategically, strategically about how we have these conversations as a church, um, not just in a five-week sermon series that we don't get to for another you know, five years, but how do we have this conversation before us always? Because it's so, so very important. Throughout the series, we've used this conglomerate description taken from Genesis 1 and 2, Matthew 19, 1 Corinthians 7, and a number of other places to describe God's vision for human sexuality. We've said this, God created the physical world and called it good, and the climax of this work was the making of two naked people with male and female genitalia who became husband and wife by their covenant and their sexual activity. They were fused together as one and encouraged to reconnect and be reminded of that bond over and over again through the pleasure of sex and exclusive faithfulness, not for a night or for a year or until the emotions wind down, but for life. And we quickly realized, again, as, as we talked about this, that nobody lives up to this perfectly. No one meets this standard. Sin has warped this ideal in all of us. There are no saints when it comes to human sexuality, right? None of us can take the moral high ground. We've all failed at one or a number of these descriptions. And if that is true, here's what it means. It means that it has left us all with scars. We've all been wounded by our sexuality. We all have scars, if not still open, gaping wounds from experiences that we have had or things that we have done. Love as a worldly idea, it beats up, it beats up on us in ways that few other things can do. And maybe you've experienced that. If you've experienced heartache or heartbreak or the loss of a partner or a spouse, a loved one, the abandonment of a spouse, betrayal within a relationship, sexual trauma, sexual abuse, these wounds cut deep and their healing can, can oftentimes feel impossible, especially when you're in the midst of it, their healing can feel impossible. You see, love for others, romantic love, erotic love, worldly love can let us down because they are always tied to people. And people are selfish and proud, and in a finite world, wherever selfishness exists, there is going to be hurt left in its wake. This idea is captured in the story of Jacob from the book of Genesis. The name Jacob literally means heel grabber in the Hebrew. It's an idiom for deceiver. And he lived up to that name. He lied and cheated his way through life. Naturally, then, he's always looking over his shoulder, trying to run, outrun the consequences. And then one day, love of all things betrays Jacob. Jacob's parents didn't want him to marry from the pagans that they were living among. And so he said, go back to her homeland and marry one of your cousins. Seems kind of odd, but that is the culture of their day. That's what people did. Go marry from our own family lineage. And so he goes back to uh, Padamaram and he finds his cousins. He sees a group of shepherds. One of them is Rachel, his cousin. And we're told this. When Jacob saw Rachel, daughter of his uncle Laban, and Laban's sheep, he went over and rolled the stone away. That's like opening the car door, right? He rolled the stone away from the mouth of the mouth of the well and watered the uncle's sheep. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and began to weep aloud. This is the closest thing we get to love at first sight in the Bible. He is showing off, right? He's puffing himself up. He's being chivalrous. He's opening the car door for her. This ancient fashion of flirtation is at its finest. And then he praised the heaven that he had a cousin this beautiful. He looked at Rachel and was like, wow, okay, thank you, Lord, that I have a cousin this incredibly good-looking. And again, it wasn't odd to marry your cousin. It was actually very common in their day. A few verses later, though, we're told this. Now, Laban had two daughters, not just one. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, we're told. 
But Rachel had a lovely figure and she was beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel. So Leah had weak eyes. That's a euphemism for unattractive. Okay. To, to put it politely, she was ugly. All right. Leah was ugly. That's just, that's just what the Bible is trying to tell us here. But Jacob was in love with Rachel and he was infatuated with Rachel, head over heels, tripping over himself. This is probably the closest thing we get to the Bible of, of romantic love. Most stories in the Bible take place after me. Most love stories in the Bible take place after marriage because marriage was, was arranged within their culture. But not this one, right? Jacob sees Rachel and he is in love with Rachel. There's this sexual chemistry and there's this deep feeling of attraction and he just cannot contain himself. He is in love with Rachel. This is like Romeo and Juliet, right? Their eyes meet and they are just like head over heels in love with each other and they can't contain their lust or their infatuation. Jacob is driven by his erotic thinking, his lust and his, like Romeo and Juliet, this is going to end disastrously. Jacob wants to marry Rachel so badly that he offers to work seven years for Laban. Seven years I will give you free labor if you can just give me your daughter Rachel in marriage. And at the end of seven years, mucking sheep pens and fending off wild animals and sleeping out in the cold, living in misery, tending sheep, we are told this, Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. I mean, this is so romantic, isn't it? I mean... Just a few days had passed. It, it was seven years, but it just it just felt like a few days. Rachel, I, it's so romantic. But then the truth comes out. Give me my wife. My time is complete. I want to make love to her. I've worked seven years, Laban. Give me Rachel so I can have sex with her. That is really what is being said here. At least he's honest though, right? And Laban had no choice, right? He had done what he had, he had said he was going to do. And so he calls the village and the family and the friends and they all come together for this great feast, this great wedding, and they party hard into the night. And Jacob is thinking, finally, after seven years, I get to have Rachel. And so he goes to the tent and there she is in the dark and she's waiting for him. And then the camera pans to the ceiling. And this is where it becomes a soap opera. The next day... The text tells us, when morning came, there was Leah. It isn't Rachel. He was blinded by lust. He was so eager to have her that he didn't even make sure that it was her he was having. And we're all thinking, how could this possibly be? But just think, right? You're, this is, this is ancient times. They're, it's dark at night, right? Women wore veils over their faces. He couldn't even see her face at their wedding day. And Laban exchanged Leah at the altar. And so he married Leah instead of Rachel. And he was so blinded by his lust that he did not even realize that he had the older sister. When he realizes, though, he's outraged, of course. He barges into Laban's tent. What is this you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? The deceiver, Jacob, has been deceived. He hung all of, hope, all of his hopes on this erotic love for Rachel. He invested his whole life into Rachel. And then morning came, and there was Leah. Leah is the archetype of disappointment. She's the archetype of wounds, love, and sex leave behind. All the unfulfilled longings, the betrayal, the deceit, the heartache and heartbreak, the abuse, the trauma, manipulation, guilt and shame. Love and lust and sex have left us all hurting and wounded to some extent. 
There are no saints when it comes to human sexuality. Nobody can take the moral high ground. Sex has left everybody wounded. And so I want to wade into the dark, and I want to strike a match that will hopefully illuminate a path forward out into the light. My friends, it is a pathway, and you have to understand that it is a pathway. This is not a quick fix. This is not a quick fix to being healed. We're dealing with the most intimate, most profound experiences around the most mysterious of actions. It is going to take time and it is going to take intention. But if you follow this pathway, in the end, you will discover healing. We first need to begin with mourning. You need to mourn how you have been wounded. We need to acknowledge that we're hurting and that we, what we've experienced, whether it be our, by our own choices or what has been done to us, is painful. The sorrow we feel from misused sexuality shouldn't be covered up or hidden under a guise of pride or humility. You see, we live in a world that mocks God's design for sexuality, and we're told that we should celebrate our sexual accomplishments. Hollywood glamorizes sexual exploration and sexual exploitation. But here's the other extreme. Maybe some of you experience this. Narcissists and manipulators will tell you that the pain you feel is your fault and that you deserved it. See, the breadth of the spectrum of ways that we're broken is wide and it is varied. But whatever your wound is, my friends, you need to mourn it. You need to acknowledge the sorrow that it's created. You need to identify the pain. And in some cases, naming the evil that occurred. And you need to call it the evil that it is. And do not shy away from calling it the evil that it is. Because mourning is one of the great doors that God walks through to draw near to those who need comfort. The psalmist writes this. He says, the Lord draws near to the brokenhearted. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. Don't dismiss the times when you're grieving the abuse of your sexuality. This is a door for God to come close, to comfort you, to heal you, because in our mourning, we're agreeing with God that the world is not right. We're agreeing that this situation is messed up. We're agreeing with God that the world is broken. And this agreement always then leaves us with a choice. You've got to understand this. Whenever we agree with God that the world is broken, that I am broken, that my situation, that what I'm experiencing is not right, it leaves me with a choice as to what to do with that knowledge. Well, we continue to move forward in similar ways and in similar patterns that we know will leave us mourning and grieving. Well, we continue to walk in painful ways, painful steps, knowing that I'm grieving this, right? I acknowledge that it's painful. I acknowledge the hurt. Why do I keep walking that same pathway? Will we keep walking the same pathway that will leave us mourning and grieving, treading in pain and wallowing in sorrow, or will we change course and change direction? In this series, we've talked a lot about our identity. <clears throat> and what I mean is that whatever we put in the center of our lives, so the, the, yeah, so you need to mourn, you need to identify your identity as the next step. You want to go back one slide? We need to mourn, right? We need to acknowledge that the, the what we're experiencing is evil, is painful. We need to acknowledge the sorrow, but then we need to identify our identity. And what I mean by that is whatever we put at the center of our lives will define our values and beliefs and will inform our behavior and actions and where we find acceptance. Every time God draws near us is an invitation for us to put him more solely at the center. And so remember, God comes near the brokenhearted. God comes near those who are mourning. And every time God comes near us, it is an invitation for us to put him more more surely at the center of our lives. Because he knows, even if we don't believe it, if we don't want to believe it, that whenever we're far from Jesus, we hurt. 
And whenever we're far from Jesus, we hurt others. So whenever we're far from Jesus, we hurt. And if we can own that fact and we can mourn the state and the sorrow and the pain that we're experiencing, the life that our being far from Jesus has created, then God in his mercy will meet us exactly where we're at without shame that we should be any further than we are on our journey, without condemnation that we should be any further than we are. And he then graciously invites us onward closer to him. And so something we must acknowledge, though, is that if Christ is not at the center of your life, and just just think about this, friends. If Christ is not at the center of your life, then something else is. If Christ is not at the center of your life, then something else is. We use this imagery early on in the series, <clears throat> that Jesus is at the center, and there are those that are close to him and those that are far from him. So you have these scattered people all around the cross, right? Some are close, some are far away. But we're all moving, right? We're all moving in one of two directions. We're either moving closer to Jesus or we're moving further away. Some are moving towards him. Some are moving away from him. Some that appear to be closest to him, like this guy in the middle, right? His heart is actually directed away from him. He, he may be very religious. He may go to church every Sunday. He may know all the answers at Bible trivia, right? He may study everything, but his heart is directed away from Christ. He is living selfishly. He is not living in love. He does not embody the person of Christ. He just bodies the idea of religion. But then there are some people who are very, maybe very far away from this, like this woman up in the corner, right? And she, she is far from God because, you know, her life maybe isn't living like a, a good Christian ought to, right? Maybe she's trapped in addiction. Maybe she's, she's living promiscuously, whatever it is. But her heart is bent towards Jesus, right? She is humble and she has surrendered her life and she's just very far from him. She's a baby on the journey and so she has a long way to go, but she's going to grow and she's going to change. It's going to happen. But if you were to take this, this imagery and and pan out from it pan out this imagery you'd see that these people are actually just chasing after different things everybody's chasing after something right if you're not chasing after jesus you're chasing after money or popularity or your children's accomplishments how many people do i see on social media just boasting about their children it's the only thing they ever post about social media is like my children are so amazing and i'm living by the way i'm living vicariously through my children because my identity is codependent upon my children and so I will tell you all about my children's accomplishments, and I will boast in them. How many of you are chasing after your work or chasing after um, your, your, your status, your job, or your body image, right? All these people are chasing after something. Everyone is chasing something. Everybody is worshiping something. Everybody has something at the center of their life that they're chasing after. Everyone has claimed their identity and they are allowing that thing to define their worth and inform their behavior. This is our modern day idolatry, right? We don't have little trinkets on shelves and temples where we have all of these other things that is taking our attention and taking our worship. So here's what I've experienced and what I know many of you have experienced as well, that every identity outside of Jesus is destined to fail you. Every identity that is not rooted in Jesus Christ will leave you wanting. It will steal your joy and it will rob you of your purpose. If it doesn't completely fail you in this life, it will abandon you in the next. And so every identity outside of Jesus will leave you disappointed and wounded. You, you've pursued things, right? And you've, you've, you've pursued people and relationships, and those have hurt you. you. You've chased after things, and you've left you wounded, right? You, you've tried to find hope in things that left you in despair. You tried to find meaning in hollow achievements. You've tried to find acceptance in people who objectified you and loved you conditionally. We've all done this. All of us have done this. And they have all lived up to their promise to fail us every single time. And so one, one question to ask, if you want to, how do you, how do you know what's in the center? 
How do you know what you're putting in the center of your life? Well, if you want to know what's at the center of your life, where you find your identity, you simply need to ask yourself, what informs my value? The values that I live by. What informs my beliefs, my behaviors? What tells me where I'm accepted? Or or take a step back and examine your life for just a second. Think about your life. If you were to give yourself a label, what would that label be? How would you define yourself? What's the first label that comes to mind? Are you a mother? Are you a father? A husband or a wife? Are you gay, straight, or trans? Are you the boss? Would you label yourself, yourself by the type of work that you do? Like, I'm a pastor, right? Maybe you're in construction, you're a teacher, you're a banker, you're an engineer. Or would you label yourself by your political party? You're a Democrat, you're a Republican. How would you label yourself? Are you a follower of Jesus? How would you label yourself? What's the first thing that comes to mind? Personally, I am a follower of Jesus first. I am a follower of Jesus first. And this informs my beliefs, my values, my behavior. And in him, I am unconditionally accepted. Now, this does not mean that I do it perfectly, that every choice I make in this life is the right one or the loving one or that I look entirely like Jesus. But Christian discipleship, maturity... In Christ means that we surrender more of our selfish ways, more of our selfish selves to the rule and to the reign of God every single day, more and more and more, putting Christ more more centrally in my life. The question isn't, do I look like Christ entirely? The question is, do I look more like Christ than I did yesterday? That's the question of Christian maturity and Christian discipleship. Do I look more like Christ than I did three months ago? Do I look more like Christ than I did a year ago than 10 years ago? Is the fruit of Christ, like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. You could throw justice in there. You could throw grace and mercy, a whole number of willing, willingness to forgive others. You could throw a whole number of things in there. Is this more evident in me? Are these more evident in me than they were a year ago? Are these more evident in me than they were 10 years ago? The, the, the question of Christian maturity isn't, do I look like Christ right now? I hope that is true because I've been traveling with Jesus for like, 30 years of my life 25 years of my life the question of christian maturity is am i growing do i see the fruit of god in me and in our more honest moments we should all recognize that none of us are running directly at jesus right we need to humbly look at ourselves we're all defiant to some extent and the narrative that's so often spoken over us is if you are defiant you're disqualified if you're if you're defiant then you're disqualified One of my favorite stories in scripture is found in the prophet Zechariah chapter three. It's a court scene. The high, the high priest Joshua is standing there and he's just, he's in the literal, literal rubble of Jerusalem, right? The, the Israelites were cast away into Babylon because of their sin. And so the Babylonians came and destroyed Jerusalem, but they were invited back to the land. And so Joshua, who is a representation of all of Israel, he's the high priest at this time. And so he's standing there literally, literally among their sin, the destruction that their sin has caused. And it's a court drama. It's a court scene. And so God is up in the dock. He's the judge. You have the, the defendant who is Israel, the people of Israel, again, represented by Joshua. And then you have Satan, who is the plaintiff. And he's just like, he's just like, you guys, you guys are so sinful. You guys are horrible. You guys should always remember how horrible you are, that you're never going to be good enough. You are never going to be good enough. You are never going to be good enough. You are never going to earn your salvation. You're never going to be good enough. You're never going to be good enough. You've done too much wrong. You've committed too many sins, too many abuses, too many wounds. You'll never be healed. And we have Satan speaking over Israel. And doesn't Satan do the same thing to all of us in these moments, friends? 
Satan in his voice, you're never going to be good enough. You're never going to be good enough. You're never, you've committed too many acts, too many sins. You're never going to be good enough. And I love the story because God steps down from the dock, stops down from the judge's position, and he gets in between Satan and Israel. And he says this, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. And I just, I think it should, it's, it's, Shut your mouth, Satan. is so much better, right? Shut your mouth. The Lord speaks on our behalf. Shut your mouth, Satan. And then he goes and he tells his angel, his attendant sitting there, take all the filthy clothes off of Joshua and replace them with beautiful garments. The, the symbol of their sin, the, beauty, the symbol of their guilt, all the filthy clothes, remove it all and redress Israel in new garments. See, Israel is standing there completely helpless, but completely guilty as God, the judge and the defender, does all of the work. And then God begins to speak. Listen, Joshua, you and your associates seated before you, you are a symbol of things to come, meaning that what I am doing for you is just a symbol. I am going to do this for everybody who trusts in me. I am going to remove their filthy clothes, and I am going to replace it with clean garments. I am going to bring my servant the branch he says, and that seems a little confusing to us, but the branch was a messianic title. I'm going to bring the Messiah, and in that day when the Messiah comes, he will do this, not just for one person, he will do this for everybody. He will cleanse the world of their sin. See, he says, the stone I've set in front of Joshua, there are seven eyes on that stone. So you get this picture, right? Joshua, he's now sitting there in clean garments, and, and God puts a stone, a rock that has seven eyes on it. Kind of weird, kind of weird imagery. I totally, I totally get how weird it is. But the, the, word, the number seven is divine perfection, right? This is how God sees perfectly. God looks at Joshua now and he sees perfectly. We look at ourselves in the mirror. We look at how the world looks at us and we see what? Our insecurities. We see our failures. We see all the ways that we've screwed up. But God has this stone and he sees perfectly. And he sees us as we truly are. And then he says, I will engrave an inscription on that stone. This is called a mictum, right? A mictum was something that you would engrave in stone because you just, you couldn't trust what was written on it to anything other than something that would last forever. You can't write this on paper because paper can burn and paper can get blown away by the wind, right? And you can't write it on goat skin because that can rot. And you can't write it on papyri because if that gets wet, then it deteriorates. And you can't even write this into metal, right? Into steel because that will rust. No, I'm going to write this in stone so that it will last forever. What I am inscribing on this stone is an eternal truth. The way that I see you is an eternal truth. But then he doesn't describe what he writes on the stone. <laughs> he builds up this all this, this energy towards what he's going to inscribe on the stone, and then he, he leaves us without telling us what he writes on it. All we're told is that this is going to happen when he removes the sin of the world in a single day. When I remove the sin of the sin, the sin of the world in a single day, when I remove you of your sin, I'm going to give you a stone, and on that stone will be an inscription that I give you. The truth is left a mystery as to what is written on that stone for 500 years until John receives his revelation from Jesus. We're told this, I will give to each one a white stone, and on that stone will be engraved an inscription, a name that no one understands except the one who receives it. So this white stone is given to everyone who participates in the victory of Jesus. 
Everyone who participates in the work of God to remove the sin of the world in a single day will receive this stone. And on the stone is an everlasting truth. It is a new name that is given, a new way to label yourself. A new identity is given to every single person who trusts in Christ. In the ancient days, the act of naming someone was the same act as adopting them. When you, when the father gave this, the child a name, that was an adoption. When God gives you a new name, my friends, you are his son, you are his daughter. You're his child. All the titles, all the labels, all the names we claimed and the identities we grasped, They've all been exposed and those names and those labels and those titles and those identities that corrupted our hearts and minds and convinced us of a false security, they have been put to death with Jesus Christ and God has replaced them with a new name, a new way to see ourselves, a new label, a new way to identify who we are. And so my friends, don't be afraid to run to God and and show him all the ways that, 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 that you've screwed up. Because God loves you, and this is the God who died for you so that you might live. And this is the God who embraces the sinner and calls the sinner his child. The God who meets you with mercy exactly where you are and graciously invites you onward. Don't be afraid to run to him and say, here is what I have been hiding. Here is the sin that I've been holding on to. Because the next step in the journey is confession. Confess to God and to others that I abused and mistreated his vision and design for human flourishing. And again, this goes so much beyond our own sexuality, right? Yes, I have abused God's design for human sexuality, but I've abused his design for humanity. I'm selfish. And so I need to own my part in the pain. I will move beyond mourning my sin and I will own my sin. It's an important part of the puzzle. I will own my part. I will own my choices. Even if the pain was inflicted on me, even if I was the victim, I will own whatever part I had in the story. Even if it was a fraction of a percent of the pain, I will take responsibility. I will not blame shift. I will not justify. I will not make excuses. And it will not be generic. I must own the specifics if I want to be healed of the specifics. You guys see how important this is. I must own the specifics if I want to be healed of the specifics. I will not merely do this before God, but when it is safe and when it is appropriate, and it's not always safe and it's not always appropriate, I get that. When it is safe, when it is appropriate, I will confess to the ones that I have injured. I've shared before about how I met Emily. I had um, I had a lot of girlfriends. Girlfriends were my identity from like sixth grade until I met Emily and she was like, you're an idiot. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to introduce you to Jesus. We're going to, you're going to change your heart. And so story for another day, but, um, a girl, girl, they were at the center of my life. They were what I was chasing after. They, they were, they were at the center. I was putting them in the middle. And so when one relationship would break off, what do you do if girls are at the middle? You have to replace it with another girl. So I think I had like 16 girlfriends before Emily. I didn't have sex with any of them, but I was very sexually active with all of them. And one day while in college, I came to realize how I had objectified them and used and abused them for their bodies. As a thing I put in the middle of my life, they were the means to my security. They were the means to my identity, which is completely unfair of anybody, right? Codependence was the, the, the MO that I, that I lived out of. And beyond that, I... I stole something from them. 
I stole their heart and their mind and their emotions and their time and their future intimacy. I stole their innocence. Now, this is back in the day when AOL Instant Messenger was really popular. And so I was having this like this crisis of conscience. And I was like, man, you know, I, I was I was beginning to understand who Jesus was in a new and profound way. And I was like, you know what? I've really hurt some people throughout the years. I've hurt some people throughout the years. And so one day I sought them all out online and I confessed my wrongs towards them, admitting what I had done, owning how I had objectified them and the role I unfairly made them play in my own life and that I had stolen from them. And then I apologized to them. And I've never talked to any of them again from from that time, but the hauntings went away. The, The crisis of conscience ended. John, one of Jesus' followers, said this, if, if we claim to be sinless, you're just lying to yourself. Everybody's a sinner. We, we've all done things. We're all broken. We've all committed wrongs. But if we own our sin, if we confess our sin, God is faithful and just and will forgive us all our sin and he will cleanse our hearts and our minds. It's not easy to lay all our sin on the table for God and everyone else to see. It's not easy to stand before others exposed because we have no idea what they're going to do with that truth, with that knowledge. Are they, are they gonna, are they gonna condemn me? Are they gonna yell at me? Are they gonna shame me? Are they gonna tell me some sob story about how I ruined their life? I mean, that's a lot of weight to carry. I'm not saying this will always be the case, but when I reached out to those girls, every single one of them thanked me, from what I can recall. They thanked me. Because it cut a tie that was holding them back somehow. It cut a tie. And so the next thing we need to do is to apologize. You need to own your part in the pain, and then you need to seek an apology. Don't just admit that what you did was wrong, but acknowledge that it hurt the other person, and then apologize. This will free you to begin working on how you have been hurt by others. Here is what is so wild about the human experience, right? This is universally true of everybody. Everyone is both an offender and has been offended. We have all hurt others and we have all been hurt by others. That is universally true. Again, none of us are saints. We've all sinned against other people and other people have also sinned against us. We have hurt. We have hurt others. It is true of everybody. What we don't often realize is that these function as cages. Cages around us. Our wounds haunt us and they keep us from being healed What we don't often realize is that there are two cages, not just one, though, around our hurt. We've kind of worked on that first cage, right? The the cage of having been an offender. We've admitted our part, we've owned it, we've confessed it, and we have found freedom, right? That is the first cage that needs to go away. We need to own the fact that we are an offender, that we have hurt people. We need to own that fact. That is where it always, always needs to begin. But now there are the wounds of having been hurt. Now there are the things that people have done to me that have hurt, the glaring deep cuts and the hauntings we carry around with us. How do we remove that cage? And this is the part that we don't want to hear. This is the part that we struggle with. But we must wrestle with this if we are going to discover healing. We must get through this part. Jesus tells this wild story in Matthew 18 about a man who owed the king of his country roughly $10 billion in back taxes. Like, in just an insane amount. Just like, you, you can't even imagine how much this money, this man owed to the king. And he was brought before the king to pay back all of his debts. And the king looks at this man. And he takes pity on him. And he mercifully forgives the entire debt. 
just, just incredible, right? So what does this man do knowing that he's experienced such grace and freedom? Well, he goes to his servant who owed him just a little, little bit of money, maybe $10,000, right? Not, not, nothing compared to what he owed the king. And he begins to choke that man and says, give me back the money that you owe me. And he throws him to prison and he beats him in the street. He demands that this man give back everything that he owes him. We need to receive God's amazing grace, friends. We need to receive God's amazing grace. We're supposed to see ourselves in this story. We are the greater offender. That is Jesus' whole point. We are the man who has been washed, who has been set free, who has been forgiven of an innumerable debt. You couldn't even contemplate or fathom how big our debt was, and yet God has forgiven us our debt. A debt that we couldn't in a million lifetimes repay. He has taken every single one of us, the worst of all sinners, and he has forgiven us. He has replaced our bucket of guilt with a bucket of grace. God has done this for each one of us. And when we confess to God our guilt, he gives us a key of grace to escape the cage of having hurt others. And he says, now, use that same key of grace to forgive those who have hurt you. You have been forgiven of such an innumerable debt. I have given you a key to unlock the cage of having, if you haven't been an offender. Now I want you to take that same key of grace and go forgive people that have hurt you. Why would you remain locked in the cage of unforgiveness when God has given you the key to be free? We need to forgive those who have hurt us. But Ross, you're thinking, you have no idea how they abused me. You have no idea how deep these wounds go. You have no idea what they did to me, how they hurt me. You know what? That is exactly true. I don't. But God does. God does. And that's not the perspective that God tells you to take. God says this, I have replaced the bucket of your guilt with a bucket of grace so that you can give it away as freely as I have given it to you. God's given you a bucket of grace so that you can fill the Dixie cup of all the ways that people have offended you. Forgiving someone does not dismiss what they've done, friends. Forgiveness does not mean that it didn't happen. It doesn't mean that it didn't hurt. It doesn't mean that it didn't matter. Forgiveness isn't about putting on blinders on your pain or minimizing the atrocity. That is not what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is about trusting God to be the administer of justice. That he will do what is right in the end. And so you need to forgive others, but then you also need to forgive yourself. You see, the the postmodern mentality tells us that if if we don't feel it, then it's not true. We talked about this a little bit last week. If we don't feel it, then it's not true. I don't feel forgiven, and so we think I must not be forgiven. Some of you, I know, struggle with self-forgiveness because you don't feel like you are forgiven. My friends, we need to replace subjective feelings with objective truth. We need to replace subjective subjective feelings of not being forgiven with the objective truth that we are forgiven my friends you are forgiven in christ and so if there ever comes a day when you don't feel like you are forgiven right that is the devil speaking over you he is saying you're not forgiven you can't be forgiven you've done too many wrongs too many things have happened to you you've committed too many crimes there's no way that you will ever be forgiven you need to look the devil back in the eyes and say you're a liar 
I am forgiven through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. That is the objective truth. Even if I do not feel if I am forgiven, the objective reality, what is true, what is real, is that I am forgiven through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. I am forgiven because the shed blood of Jesus Christ has cleansed me from all unrighteousness. I am not condemned because my sin has been nailed to the cross of Jesus. And so look the devil back in the eyes and say, you're a liar. I am forgiven. And then you need to repent. Then having acknowledged God's kindness to you, you need to resolve to live differently. Put Jesus more firmly at the center of your life. Acknowledge your, you've drifted and surrender to the work of God's spirit in you to put you back on track. Stop living in a way that is perennially hurting yourself. You know you're mourning. You've identified the mourning. You've identified the sorrow. You've identified the pain. Stop living in a way that is going to continually, perennially cause more pain in your life. Repentance simply means change. This might mean changing your associations. It might mean changing your phone number. It might mean changing your habits, changing your mind about what's right and wrong, changing your perspective. And then you need to begin to steward your life, your sexuality, well in the company of others also on a similar journey. My friends, you can't do this alone. Healing is a communal activity. You need people who are also walking towards Jesus to walk with you on your journey. Commit to new rhythms and habits with the accountability of others on the same journey to Jesus. We are responsible and we are accountable for all that we have been given in this life. And we're managers of it all, and we will have to give account for how we have used it. And so, my friends, walk with others who are walking with you to keep you accountable to the life that has been trusted to you. My friends, if at any point in your journey you skip out on one of these, you will find that your healing process will not be complete. A lot of people have tried to find healing in a part of some of these things. But until you do them all, friends, you will not find fullness of healing for your heart, for your mind, or for your soul. I want to invite Emily forward. We're going to sing one final song as we conclude our time together. Did you know that God is in the letdowns? We, we serve a God of the letdowns in some ways, a God who is with us in the letdowns, the God who is with us in the disappointments. The wounds are where his light can so oftentimes shine through. Jacob, the guy we started with, he does get to marry his beloved Rachel, as the story goes. A week after his marriage to Leah, he marries Rachel in exchange for another seven years of working for Laban. And now he's married to both sisters. So you think your household is dysfunctional, friends? (laughs) He's married to both sisters. Leah knows that she's the second choice, though. She's well aware of this. And Rachel, over the years... She turns out to be a problem. Jacob wanted wanted Rachel for her beauty, and she ended up being a thorn in his side. How many relationships begin with lust, and they end up in a cycle of resentment? Her character falls short of her beauty. She lies, she steals, she worships idols, and for years she is barren. And in their culture and their time, like that was disastrous because your children were your labor force, they're your military, they're your retirement plan. Eventually, she is given two sons. But Leah, the one with weak eyes, the one who was unattractive, the one who was ugly, she had eight sons. And one of her sons was named Judah. 
And from his tribe came the long line of Israelite kings, David, Solomon, Hezekiah, all the great kings of Israel. And hundreds of years later, there would be another king born into a cave in the town of Bethlehem. Jesus, the Messiah, also came from Leah. You see, God isn't just in the letdowns of life. He uses the letdowns of life. He uses your disappointments. He is going to use your wounds. The dreams and the accomplishments and the relationships and the marriages that don't measure up, even in a screwed up family with a polygamous marriage that was anything but God's vision for ideal sexual relationship, God was at work in Jacob's life. God uses our sin, our pain, our mistakes, our rebellion, our misjudgments, and our bad decisions. Love, marriage, sex, singleness, the whole thing was created by God. It's good. It's all good. It's all wonderful. It's to be enjoyed. And I hope and pray that you do, and you do it well. Live the way that God intended you to live, my friends. Live the way of Jesus, and you will find fruitfulness and joy. But know this as well. Nothing in this world can fill the gaping void in your heart that was left when we departed Eden, when we sinned, when we rebelled against God. Nothing in this world no relationship, no love, no sex, none of it could fill the gaping hole that was left in your heart as we abandoned Eden. Not the best marriage, the best sex, the best romance, none of it. All that stuff is incredible, but it is not God. See, the letdowns are going to come. We all know this, right? We've all experienced it because we've all been wounded by relationships or people or sex or whatever. And when the letdowns come, you need to remind yourself that This life, even in its best moments, is nothing more than a signpost pointing to the age to come. You see, the day when there will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more tears, all of the former way of life that are embodied in all these things will be done away with. When sorrow and sighing will flee away and when we will be with God, just like we were supposed to be in the very beginning. Eden will be restored, the way of life that we are all intended to live is coming for all of us. And so it's, it's, it's my guess is that the closing paragraph of the Bible is a, is a prayer, but the, it's a prayer wrapped in wedding imagery. If you read the, the last paragraph of Revelation chapter 22, it's a prayer, but it's a prayer wrapped in wedding imagery. A Jewish bride never knew when her wedding day was. She just knew that she was supposed to wait for her groom to come back. Her lover was coming soon. At an hour that she was not aware of, but that she needed to be prepared for. So she would live every day with one eye fixed on the window, one eye fixed on the horizon, waiting, waiting, waiting for the restoration, for the wedding. And I think that's actually a pretty good way for us to live all of our lives. The Spirit and the Bride say, come. Heavenly Father, that is my prayer. The Spirit and the Bride say, come. The Spirit and the Bride say, come. We are all longing, Father, for a world that is done with sorrow and done with pain, done with evil, done with mourning. We're waiting eagerly, Father, eagerly with expectation that the Spirit and the Bride come, Lord Jesus. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. But in the meantime, Father, you have healed the world through the shed blood of your son, Jesus. And so may we chase more surely after him. And may the first fruit of that new creation 
the proof of your spirit, Father, in each of us. Restore us, Father, to a point where we are healed, where we are forgiven, where we are thriving. Because we've mourned and we've identified where we, we failed, Father. We've confessed our sin. We've acknowledged your grace. We've forgiven others. We've forgiven ourselves, Father. We've repented and we are going to steward now from this day forward the life that you've entrusted to us. So may we be a people who make room for you to do the work that you want to do in us as we surrender more and more every single day, surrender more and more, Father, so that there would be more of Jesus and less of us, more of Jesus and less of us. We do pray this in his name.